Today's sermon text is Galatians 3, 15 through 22. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So, so far in Galatians, we've seen that um, Paul had quite the, the mess on his hands. Uh, you had these Jewish believers compelling these Gentile believers to adopt works of the law. These were these identifiable markers of the old covenant associated with the Mosaic law, which defined those who were in and those who were out, those who were really God's people and those who were not. At the very least, these included things like circumcision and food laws, possibly others as well. At the very least, circumcision and food laws, the very things we see in the text of Galatians itself. Now, this wasn't uh, an ideal situation by any means. Sometimes we tend to romanticize the past, think about how perfect things were in the past. In this case, first century Christianity, the reality is it was quite messy uh, as you had this struggle with the reality of a new covenant. What, what do we now do with these Gentiles who are being incorporated into the people of God? Uh, should we make Gentiles keep the law, specifically those things that make them look Jewish? Is that what marks out genuine covenant membership? Or is it faithfulness to the same Messiah that we all worship, Jesus Christ? Uh, perhaps an easy way to summarize all these questions is, where do we draw the boundaries. The reality is we still struggle with boundaries, uh, defining who really are the people of God and who are not. Uh, you see it all around us as boundaries are drawn and redrawn over and over and over again as to mar what marks out me and those like me as truly worthy of grace and redemption. Uh, it's the very issue we see in our passage today. And thus far in Galatians, Paul has been uh, quite passionate, if you will, uh, dare I say heated throughout the letter as he addresses the problem of believers possibly turning to works of the law as opposed to the grace they've received through faith or in addition to the grace they've received through faith. Um, at one point, Paul's been so emotional and so heated, he calls his readers bewitched. At another point, he calls them foolish. Um, honestly, I don't know how Paul would have done in our modern-day classes in pastoral theology. Uh, you can almost imagine uh, the conversation. So, uh, Paul, how would you address those who are in danger of falling into error? Fools, 
you're all bewitched. <laughs> F, right? Uh, I don't know if this guy's going to make it. Let's send him back to Tarsus. Uh, but now, in this part of the letter, Paul, if you will, he tones things down. He gets a little more friendly. He calls his readers brothers and sisters in this particular part of his letter to the Galatians, which must have sounded uh, really nice to his readers after being browbeaten, if you will, for about three and a half chapters now. Uh, but if you missed the edgy Paul, uh, don't worry, he's back later on in chapter five. Uh, he's going to call, he's going to wish his opponents would emasculate themselves. All right. Um, so enjoy that friendly Paul while you have him. Uh, it's, uh, but later on, it's all painful again. Um, anyhow, <laughs> so this is what Paul's more friendly word looks like uh, in his letters. So he's aware that Jewish teachers are arguing that the Mosaic law takes precedence over the covenant that God has made with Abraham. So in 3.15 through 18, Paul provides a gentle, at least for Paul, a word of correction about the priority of the Abrahamic covenant. Then in Galatians 3.19 through 22, he provides a word of clarification about the function of the law until the arrival of Christ. Now this last part helps us avoid thinking the law is negative or bad, like grace, good, law, bad. In fact, these two work together, and the law is a very good purpose uh, as we look at the entire economy of salvation in Scripture as it prepares us for the arrival of Christ. So in all of this, in these two sections, this, in this whole passage, if you will, what takes priority as the true mark of those who really are the people of God and worthy of life here and into a world far better than this one is our faithfulness to the one crucified and now resurrected Jesus, the Messiah. He takes priority as to who's really in and who's really out, and nothing else added to that. All right, so Paul begins his word of correction in verse 15. He does so by using uh, an example from everyday life. This is what he says. He says, to give a human example, brothers and sisters, uh, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So in other words, even with human covenants, these legally binding agreements between two parties or two people, the expectation is that it's unalterable. You're, you're going to take nothing away, add nothing to it. The idea is it remains the same, right? At least in its purpose, if you will. So the implication is, if this is true of a human covenant, it has to be all the more the case with a covenant that God has made with Abraham. Uh, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater, if you will. So the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, as they were originally stated in Genesis, are still applicable. They cannot be changed or altered by any kind of later agreement. In the case of this passage, the later Mosaic law does not change or nullify what God has already promised in the earlier covenant that God made with Abraham, all right? Then Paul moves on in verse 16 and talks about the promises made to Abraham in Genesis. So far, we can think of uh, three promises in total, land, offspring, and blessing. So last week, Tom talked about the promise of the Spirit, uh, which is fulfilled um, I'm sorry, the promise of the blessing, which is fulfilled in the Spirit. We saw that in Galatians 
3.14. In our particular passage today, uh, Paul's going to mention uh, two others, the promise of offspring and the promise of land or a land inheritance. The promise of offspring is easy to see. Uh, the promise of an inheritance or a land inheritance uh, takes a little more, a little closer look as to where Paul is drawing these passages from and the context uh, in which uh, Paul is drawing from the arguments made there which evoke two promises. The promises of offspring, all right, and the offspring receives something, and that's the land inheritance. And this is how he makes his argument. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So you see all these quotation marks uh, in this particular verse. So, and sure, what's Paul doing? Paul is showing his readers how to exegete Scripture, right? Uh, in particular, he's saying it's not many offsprings, but these passages that I'm now highlighting from Genesis, these Abrahamic covenant passages, refer to one person, and that is the recipient of the promises, the true offspring of Abraham, is one person. Jesus Christ, all right? But notice towards the very end, or almost the very end, uh, Paul quotes these very words, and to your offspring. So Paul is citing these words from passages like Genesis 13, 15, and 17, 18, in which the offspring of Abraham receives something. They receive the land, all right? Uh, so what Paul is doing is he's transferring Words from one particular context in Genesis, these Abrahamic covenant contexts, and he is transferring them now into Galatians to make a point. So even though Paul doesn't say land or uh, land inheritance, the idea is the offspring of Abraham, in this case Christ, which Paul makes pretty clear, receives something, and the offspring receives the land. I think this is confirmed later on in the passage as Paul mentions promise, which refers to the promise of inheritance. Also, he specifically refers to the idea of an inheritance, all right? So who gets the inheritance promised to Abraham of this land, if you will? It's Jesus, right? Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, and thus he is the heir to the promises of land mentioned all the way back in Genesis, which Paul now brings into view in his text in Galatians. So, and the implication is if anyone else wants to be an heir, we have to reckon with the fact that the inheritance to Abraham, the promises to Abraham, run straight through and to one particular person, and that's Jesus the Messiah, right? Nothing else, no other work we place priority on qualifies anyone for an inheritance. It all runs through Jesus. Now, a few moments ago, I mentioned the words, and to your offspring, right? That these evoke the promises of land to the descendants of Abraham. In this case, Paul makes clear that Jesus is the offspring who gets the land, right? Now, as Christians, we rarely hear much discussion about the promise of land in Scripture. If we do, we think it's some sort of uh, Old Testament thing promised to Israel, where they're supposed to receive the land, where they live a long life in the land the Lord their God is giving them, right? These were God's earthly people, and they're supposed to dwell on the earth. But as Christians, our tendency really is to think more of like this, this heavenly uh, reality, if you will, uh, that we're supposed to spend life in some sort of uh, 
place of heavenly bliss, the spiritual realm. We're supposed to float around on clouds as we listen to Mozart on our earbuds, right? Invisible earbuds, um, if you will. So there really is this disconnect at times between the old covenant promises and how they're fulfilled in the New Testament. It's not like we see a whole lot of continuity, especially in this case uh, with the promise of land, as if there was this radical shift, if you will, from one testament or covenant to the other, from physical, eternal promises to now very spiritualized one. But the reality is the New Testament authors never really do that. They never explicitly shift these very physical promises in the, under the Old Covenant to now very spiritualized ones under a New Covenant. So rather than discontinuity, when Paul cites such passages, we should assume continuity. That is, the nature of the promises from one testament to the other essentially remain the same. There are some differences, there are some expansions, if you will, but the promises to Abraham under the old covenant are also the promises to Abraham and his descendants under a new covenant. In this case, the promise uh, to Abraham's offspring is still the land. This is the place where Abraham's offspring are supposed to spend eternal life, that is, a long life in the land the Lord their God is giving them. They're supposed to do it in this place. And the recipient of the land inheritance is Jesus. And all those who want an inheritance must go through Jesus. So in the case of Paul, he was a Jew, right? Like most other New Testament authors. So he would have been well-versed uh, in the Old Testament. That was his Bible. That was the Bible of his audiences, even that of his opponents as well. So he's teaching them how to rightly understand these promises. So he would have known the promises to Abraham as he cites in Galatians 3, confirmed to Isaac, Jacob, and David of a land where his offspring would dwell forever, where there would be peace, prosperity, and justice, where there would be final redemption, right? But after Israel goes into exile, the promises become expanded, if you will. They now include not just this little sliver of territory, but the entire renewed world, this new creation, which, for example, Isaiah mentions in Isaiah 65 and 66. And sometimes this new creation is depicted with this Edenic language, like a return to Eden, if you will. You can think of Ezekiel 36 and 37. So when the Old Testament ends, Israel is still in exile, all right? Still waiting for someone to deliver them into the now cosmically expanded land the Lord has promised his people, right? And where do you see that Paul has this understanding of the inheritance that we see developed from Genesis all the way into uh, the prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah? Look, for example, in Romans 4.13, perhaps the clearest statement of how Paul conceives of the inheritance. Here, you see here that he follows this developed understanding of the land, right? Where he argues that Abraham and his offspring are the heirs of the cosmos, the entire world, if you will. So he's not taking this out of thin air. Uh, he's familiar with how the Old Testament scriptures progressively develop this theme. So he doesn't spiritualize it, but it's still very physical to him. It's very tangible. What do the offspring of Abraham get? They get the entire world as their inheritance. And once the world, it's this new Eden, it's this new creation promised to all of God's people who seek an inheritance through Christ. All right, so Paul does not in any way anticipate that someday God's going to destroy the earth uh, and give us heaven, right? The earth is good. God created it. He's going to redeem it one day, right? At best, heaven is this intermediary state 
what God's people have been waiting for is for him to redeem the earth, to make it new, to make it a place fit for him and his people to dwell forever, right? That's the fulfillment of the land promised to Abraham. And Paul says that the recipient of the inheritance is none other than Jesus Christ. And more explicitly in verse 22, he says that the promise is also for those who have faith in Jesus the Messiah. So the inheritance runs straight through one person, Jesus. And if we want to be heirs, then our trust must be in Jesus, adding nothing, substituting nothing, because nothing can change or alter this prior agreement, this prior arrangement that God has already made with Abraham. So by trusting in him, and not by any other works that identify us as some sort of faithful remnant and others not, our identity becomes wrapped up with Jesus. We are also heirs. We too are also offspring of Abraham who received the entire renewed world as our inheritance, all right? And it runs all through Jesus Christ. This arrangement is unalterable. It's unchangeable because God made it freely with Abraham. And Paul goes on in verses 17 through 18, this arrangement, which is grounded in the covenant with Abraham, is not nullified in verses 17 through 18 or rendered ineffective in any way through the later Mosaic law, which was given 430 years after God had already freely given it to Abraham, right? This strengthens the point that keeping the law as a way to prove that we are the true people of God is not the way to eternal life in the renewed world God promised to his people. If anything, that's just legalism, right? Adding things, adding requirements that mark us and others out as worthy. That's not the way to an inheritance. If anything, that's just the way to the curse that Paul mentions in Galatians 3.11, right? And it's that, if that's the route that we want to take, um, and that's the route to a curse, not an inheritance. It's the way to being away from the people of God and the land he's giving them forever. So the way to an inheritance only goes through Jesus, nothing else at all. all right? So Paul's opponents were likely holding to Jesus as the Messiah, but were placing prior- priority, not on what Paul places priority, but on the law given to Moses as the way to an inheritance, as the way to final redemption. But as we see, Paul corrects this thinking. He flips it on its head, placing priority on the prior covenant made with Abraham, the terms of which cannot be changed or altered by anyone. Right? So the law certainly has a good purpose in God's economy and salvation history, and Paul will get to it in just a moment. But for now, Paul wants to emphasize the essential nature of the covenant God freely gave to Abraham and fulfilled in Christ. Nothing else marks us out. Nothing else identifies us as genuine heirs. Only our faithfulness to Jesus. All right? um, but as we think about this passage, what Paul says here, it really grinds against some of the tendencies in Christianity, right? Nothing new. I mean, they go all the way back to first century Christianity, all right? Sometimes we think that our group or camp uh, are the ones who truly have it right and truly are the ones who were accepted before God. And we expect that others will be like us and all our secondary and tertiary stances, sometimes stances that aren't really worth discussing. Otherwise, well, they're just not really 
one of the faithful. Um, it's Jesus plus a set of identifiable markers or works, which are boundaries, if you will, for those who we see as really part of the people of God and those who we see as not part of, of the people of God. All right, And those who are in and those who are out. We mark those who are in and those who are out, not by faithfulness to Jesus, but too often, sometimes even unconsciously, by those who identify themselves just like this and all these other stances or positions, if you will. Um, and we've heard throughout our sermon series in Galatians how we tend to draw, draw boundaries, if you will, around ourselves and others based on things like political views, whether we wear masks or don't wear masks, vaccinated or unvaccinated, right? These are all legitimate and perhaps some of the strongest ways in which, which Christians presently defy, divide themselves themselves and others define who are really faithful and those who are not. But there are others as well that we can possibly mention. Uh, some of them can be social class. It could be one's race. It could be even be one's nationality as, as, pri as privy to true Christianity, uh, if you will. Uh, still others maybe revol revolve around some other things like spiritual gifts, uh, what preachers we follow, for example. Even what kinds of Bibles we prefer. What, some translations for certain Bibles may be more literal. Others may be more paraphrased. And if you share the same translation, well, then we coalesce around the right study Bible version. Uh, one person, for instance, has the ESV study Bible. Another person has the extra large ESV study Bible with the maps. The one that's so big that it can also be used in self-defense. Uh, <laughs> And in case you didn't know, people are pretty passionate about their study Bibles. Uh, nothing wrong with study Bibles. Uh, <laughs> in highlighting all these things, I'm just trying to make a point. That is, our propensity to associate ourselves and those like us based upon standards other than our common faith in Jesus to mark those who are really believers and worthy of God's grace and, well, those simply who are not. And when we do this, even as unconsciously as it may be sometimes, we're in danger of falling into the very error the Galatians were in danger of falling into, of placing priority on requirements that overshadow the one who makes us true sons and daughters and worthy of everything promised to Abraham and his children. Uh, one particular scholar of the New Testament puts it like this. He says, it's to lose one of the most fundamental aspects of Paul's gospel, that our acceptance before God is based solely upon Jesus. All right. Any other requirement we add, no matter how well-intentioned, is still legal. Excuse me, legalism. All right. Now, we tend to think this only applies uh, to, for example, people that say that, well, women have to wear uh, long hair or men, uh, can only have hair above, above their ears, or women have to wear long skirts. However, we seem to think about those who we really define as, as legalists, uh, if you will. The reality is, we too can be legalists. And the way we mark our, ourselves out as worthy of being considered God's people by anything other than the grace we've received in Jesus, right? Secondary and tertiary matters are important to talk about, okay? They are worthy, but... They should never be used to consider who's really in and who's really out. 
Those who are really in the people of God are those who find their worthiness for grace, redemption, forgiveness, and to be an heir of all God promises people only in Jesus. Right? Our identity as sons and daughters who will receive all God promises people is wrapped up in Jesus. That's what brings us into the family of God with people like Abraham, David, and all those across history and throughout the world. Our primary unity is found with these people who are in Christ, not other markers which identify us at best through secondary or tertiary affiliations or other affiliations that really aren't even worth mentioning, right? These should never be given priority over the status we have with fellow brothers and sisters who are faithful to Jesus, the Messiah. Now, as we think about this passage, it should really, I think, lead to some sort of self-reflection about what we truly place priority on. What in our minds really identifies us as those who are truly worthy of grace? Where do we draw those boundaries, consciously or unconsciously, as those who are genuine children of God and worthy of being called recipients of the promises, right? If you don't know them, just go to your social media page, right? They're all there. Uh, I'm sure mine are there too, so don't, don't look them up. Um, and if you don't have social media, it's evident when we spend most of our time talking about, reading about, emphasizing. There you'll see our boundary markers, if you will. Uh, now, we're always drawing and redrawing these boundary markers. They're always changing and shifting over time. And it can be any of the, any of the number of things that we've mentioned, all right? It can even be doctrinal camps, like being an Arminian. Others, Reformed. Still others, 1689 London Baptist Confession, Reformed. Um, it could even be the style of preaching. I prefer expository preaching over topical preaching. Nothing against expository preaching. I like expository preaching. Um, it could even be the Facebook group that we're part of that has all the right answers to everything. Right? Um, it can be a whole lot of things. The list goes on and on and on. We prioritize certain boundaries that demarcate those who are in and those who are out. When we do this, again, we're in danger of falling into the very error of the Galatians. We're in danger of falling into defining who really are faithful covenant members and, well, those who are not. But as you see this too often, it leads to what Paul talks about later in, in his letter, which is biting and devouring one another. You see a whole lot of this in society, and honestly, you see a whole lot of it in the church today, all right? But like the Galatians, we as Christians are supposed to be different, right? We're supposed to be marked out and identified by our faithfulness to Jesus. Other things will important, like secondary and tertiary matters, at best, all right, uh, those things are important, but those things don't really define who's a believer and who's not. Uh, and when Christians disagree, and they will until Jesus returns, we do so knowing that our worthiness is based solely on Jesus, right? Leaving us with much grace for others who disagree. If anything, Christians in particular, perhaps even those who call themselves Reformed, who emphasize grace, should be the most gracious people, testifying to the one whom we owe absolutely everything, Jesus Christ. All right? So perhaps this is the time we can think about 
what is taking priority in our lives? What are the things that we've kind of put forward as these markers in which we use as badges of pride, if you will, uh, as to who really is one of the faithful, us and others like us, and who's not? And perhaps it's time to move some of those things to the periphery um, and reorient ourselves to thinking, acknowledging, and confessing that the only one who makes us worthy of being called children of God, like Jesus, and recipients of all the promises, is Jesus himself. He takes priority. But with all Paul has said about the law, we may be led to believe the law is bad, right? If we're honest, the law does have a negative connotation in Christian circles, if we're not supposed to be defined by the law, if it's supposed to be grace, if you will, there is this tendency to think that the law is bad and grace is good, all right? Judaism, bad. Grace, Christianity is good. All kinds of false dichotomies here. There's all kinds of backstories to why we hold these things sometimes. The reality is these are all false dichotomies. Um, there's actually much continuity between the law and grace with, with Judaism from which Christianity is birthed and the way we practice Christianity today. All right, And Paul understands these continuing promises for the law in view of the arrival of of Christ and other things that are important about the law are the way the prophets look forward to the fact that the Spirit will enable his people to keep the law, that is, obey, to love God and neighbor. And Paul gets that later in chapter 5. For now, in verses 19 through 22, he's going to provide a corrective word about the law. He provides an important, I'm sorry, not corrective, he provides an important word of clarification about the actual function of the law until the arrival of Christ. So Paul begins with a question, right? In light of everything I've said, why then the law? It's a natural reaction. If it does not take precedent over the Abrahamic covenant, if it's not the way to an inheritance, then what's its purpose? And here comes the clarification. Paul says in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, there are all kinds of possible interpretations as to what Paul is saying in this passage. When you look at the Pentateuch, however, you see a couple of pretty clear functions for the law. That is, to reveal sin and to deal with it. It revealed sin in that you now understood that what you were doing was sin. It's an offense against God and neighbor. Not that there wasn't sin before, but you now understand that what you're doing is transgression, that it's sin. And now that you know your sin, it provides a way with dealing with your sin through the, sacri- through the sacrificial system. Uh, in particular, you have these animal sacrifices, like on the Day of Atonement, which were offered for the sins of the people, right? But these were not permanent. They, were, they weren't perfect. They had to be redone and redone in preparation for the arrival of Christ. But once Christ arrived, There was no longer a need for the law as a remedy to deal with transgressions because Christ had now come and dealt with sin once and for all. All So why the need for the law? A couple of reasons. To reveal and to deal with sin, however imperfectly, until the arrival of Christ. So um, I'm in the habit of sending um, emojis on texts. Uh, so sometimes you'll send me, someone will send me you know, two or three paragraphs uh, wor- worth of a text. I'll respond with like three or four emojis, like fist bump, 
happy face, uh, you know, muscular arm. Um, so I was telling my wife recently, I said, hey, I've been sending uh, people this emoji, right? This, right? Whenever I'm really happy with something or I'm really excited or really pumped about what they're doing. Um, and she's like, she's like, you know what that means, right? I'm like, yeah, it means, it means rock on. It's like, no, this means I love you. I'm like, oh. So <laughs> I've been sending this <laughs> to a whole lot of people <laughs> who probably think I'm very weird or something's definitely wrong with me. What I actually meant this, right? Good job. You know, I'm really pumped for what you said. What my wife did to me was reveal that what I had been doing was wrong or incorrect, and I had no idea before she actually talked to me about it. Uh, then I sought to deal with, do I mass text people? Do I find them, call them, and tell them what, what I was thinking? Do I, um, do I get on Facebook? You know, nothing could perfectly deal with what I had done. Uh, nothing. Well, this, if you're here and I did that to you, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't mean that, all right? It's <laughs> probably somebody in here. Um, anyway, the law sort of functioned this way, revealing sin that we were unaware of and then attempting to deal with it however imperfectly, until the arrival of the promised offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So beyond this, this corny illustration, right? At the law revealed but could not permanently deal with sin, with sin still has relevance for us today. The, st- the law still reveals sin to us, but can never really deal with with sin, right? Only Jesus can. It still reveals to us, for instance, those things we take pride in, those things that we think make us worthy of grace and others like us as well, but also shows us our complete inability to deal with our own sin and to make us worthy of God's forgiveness. Only Jesus can do that, right? Thankfully for us, the promised one, Jesus, the one to whom the law pointed, has arrived, right? We need only to look at him, his work on our behalf on the cross through which our sins are forgiven, they're dealt with forever, and we are made sons and daughters of God and heirs of all that God has promised his people. All right? Whatever it is for you, Christ has dealt with it once and for all. You may know what your sin is, but Christ has dealt with it once and for all, something the law could never do, all right? That's why our worthiness for forgiveness and redemption rests solely on him. Nothing we could ever point to that makes us and others worthy of of God's grace. If we want to point to someone, point to Jesus. That's it. Now, in the remainder of verses 19 through 20, there's another conundrum uh, in this passage. I think we've seen several so far that are difficult to interpret, uh, and it reads like this. It's perfectly, it makes perfect sense. Um, And the law, and it, the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Makes perfect sense, right? Really easy. Um, Actually, if you look at Jewish tradition, there was this tradition that the law went through these multiple levels of mediation before Moses ever received it. It was from God through angels and ultimately to Abraham. Um, So what Paul wants to say is these multiple levels of of mediation are inferior to the way that God gave his lasting covenant uh, to Abraham. That is, he gave it directly from himself to Abraham, showing once once again the priority at the Abrahamic covenant 
takes over the, the, the law given to Moses. The law given to Moses had multiple levels of mediation, whereas the promises that God gave to Abraham through the covenant were given directly from God to Abraham, pointing again to the precedence that the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in Christ has over the Mosaic law. But again, after making this point, there is the danger of thinking the law is negative or bad or evil uh, in some way. So Paul now asks a similar question to the one he does in verse 19. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, certainly not, or perhaps even stronger, may it never be. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be rooted in or by the law. The fact is, the law is not contrary to the promises of God. Of God, right? Paul's already explained their intermediary function of the law until the arrival of Christ. The only way it would be contrary is if the law actually had the ability to grant life and righteousness, but it doesn't. The law only revealed but cannot permanently deal with sin. Only Jesus can do that. So, no, the law and the promises are not contrary. In the economy of God's grace, as He's worked throughout, History, these two actually work together in tandem with one another, if you will. And Paul now makes this fairly clear in verse 22, where he says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So at the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, or perhaps in some translations, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is Paul's way of rounding out the passage, if you will, showing that the scriptures witness that the law could reveal but could not finally deal with sin, right? So what does it make us feel like? It makes us feel like we're imprisoned. The law shows us our sin, but it doesn't give us a permanent remedy for dealing with our sin. So we feel imprisoned under the weight of the curse. That's the way it's designed until the arrival of the promised offspring of Abraham, once he arrives, being faithful to rescue us from sin and all its consequences, we now see, see clearly the one to whom the law was pointing. We feel desperate, we feel imprisoned, with no way out. Jesus is our remedy, right? It's only in him that we have the hope of a promised inheritance of a new creation where we'll spend eternity with him with Jesus and all others who have trusted with in him throughout history. So we can think of it perhaps like this. The law always points to the one who could deal with sin once and for all. It's only through him and not any works that define our worthiness or distinctiveness to be the people of God that we are the recipients of all God promised to Abraham, to all God promised the children of Abraham through faith, of dwelling in a world immensely better than this one, one in which believers have been anticipating ever since they were exiled from the garden, a new garden where we would once again dwell with God and his people in peace, harmony, and justice forever. That comes only through Jesus. As we think about this passage, um, think what Paul communicates through his word of correction and later clarification is that our standing as genuine recipients of the promises rests solely on the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. He always takes priority. 
He's the only one who makes us worthy. Nothing else or no one else. So let's go ahead and draw boundaries. Um, To a degree, we have to draw them. But as we're drawing these boundaries as to who really is in and who's not, who really is a believer and who's not, who's really worthy to receive what God has promised his people, his faithful people, let's go ahead and draw them around all those who believe in the crucified, now resurrected Jesus the Messiah, who will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. If we do so, I believe that we'll really see that those who are really in include a whole lot of people from a whole lot of places and backgrounds with whom we will one day worship God in a new creation. Those who place their priority on God's grace. Uh, let's bow our heads together for a moment. Let's, uh, let's take some time uh, to reflect. Let's, take a, let's, let's think about some ways in which we can reprioritize Jesus as the only one who makes us worthy of being called sons and daughters of God and recipients of an inheritance.